0: hi everyone this is dave newbert marketing director for eagle eye power solutions and welcome to our podcast dc power hour the show where we will discuss everything related to you guessed it critical dc power solutions so charge up power on or do whatever it takes to get yourself excited for the episode of dc power hour welcome back everyone to another episode of dc power hour I'm joined by a few members of our sales team. We've got Patrick, Andrew, and Doug in the house on the DC Power Hour today, and our Battery Blarney duo of George and Alan. So welcome, guys. Thanks for joining the the show today. And we're going to do something a little different today, sort of a roundtable discussion. And we're going to see if we can take some questions that the, the sales team fields, in, in their calls with customers and things like that. And some demands that they are asked to, overcome and, see if our, our, battery Blarney duo can, can help them overcome these, these challenges. So excited to have you guys here. I'm gonna start it off with Doug. You got some,
1: some questions for, for George and Alan. All right. My first question is in regards to batteries. Uh, many batteries, uh, including VLA batteries have SAN and fire retardant jar options. Is there a time when either one of them should be used or one should be recommended for usage over the other?
2: Yes and no. If the the SAN is not flame retardant, FR obviously stands for flame retardant. And the material of the SAN jar is, it has a additive, which is once again, I a, can't can't remember what the acronym is. Joseph, surely correct me. But it has a, a material added to the the polypropylene uh, or polybutylene that uh, gives it a better heat index, better heat dissipation index. Whereas the flame retardant uh, is usually required a if the customer asks for it, and b if the location thinks you might warrant it. In other words, if you're quoting to a A UPS user. Uh, Now we're talking about vented lead acid cells here. If you're according to a UPS user, you might want to ask the question, do you require a FR-rated battery? So or battery jar. So that's the short answer. So if George wants to expand upon that, that would be great.
3: I think what I'd like is to make sure we understand what we mean by flame retardant. There is, it's, it's classed as UL94V0. And if you see that on the specification for the battery, then they are looking for a, a, a unit that meets that requirement. And what we're talking about here is, is the ability of the actual material to support flame on its own. The sand jars If you set once they start once they're ignited they will continue to burn on their own quite happily, you know they've got enough oxygen within them to keep burning, whereas the flame retardant jars are, are, are they will if you put a flame to them they will actually burn but the moment you take that flame away from them they stop burning, and that's that's the definition of something that's flame retardant. It's not that the the plastic doesn't burn on the FR jars. It's simply that once the source of fire is taken away from it, it will extinguish. So okay, George, you're, you you're going to be governed often by the fire requirements for that particular building.
2: Yeah, I'd also like to add that one way you can tell the difference between the jars, usually, is the sand jar is usually a slight brownish tint to them for one pretty p- clear you know it's like a a glass at least that's what i found in the past
0: okay okay well, yeah thanks guys i guess we can go around the horn andrew you have a question for the the guys here
4: i guess this is a follow-up to that You know, in our industry, we do a lot of competitive bidding and a lot of municipality bids and different things like that. And even when we're not working with municipality, we're often going against a a direct competitor. How do you make sure that the customer fully understands what they're getting rather than using the lowest jar material? If you're saying that uh, you really should go with the FR, material type, even when the customer doesn't specify it, how do you differentiate that in, into a quote against a, a customer and uh, competitors?
2: Well, probably the easiest way is to you know, tell them what they're getting, Andrew, but I buy if I write a technical note and let you have it, you can conclude with every quote and tell them why you're quoting a particular material. We probably shouldn't quote anything other than Fr, you know, I make sure the, the customer knows that, and you can say well, we have a slightly cheaper version, but the, the the case material is not flame retardant.
4: Yeah, if they were to take the slightly cheaper version, they would they would need to understand the responsibility and some exactly. of the codes that they may be in violation of.
2: Exactly, and you probably find they're going to come to for an fr anyway because they don't understand what liabilities they will have mhm i'm sure you got a harder question than that Andrew.
4: i do you know there, there's a lot that's been going on and we've touched on it in the past about TPL 001-5 and and I've actually had quite a few customers that have said, hey, you know, one, one route that we've decided to do on all of our primary sites is, is we've actually decided to go with a, a redundant battery string in there. And what's not always clear to me in the understanding is if they're truly how that truly works with the customer, because I've seen that to where they actually have a system that's in standby Uh, and not actually as a primary. And then I've seen other customers actually directly tie those two systems into parallel to where they're on the same shared load. Do you know the differences in, in, in how that goes when it comes to overcoming, trying to get the customer to invest in, say, like a battery monitoring system to reduce the maintenance costs, even if they are sticking with two? Is there any differences between them actually having the systems completely isolated and having them tied in direct parallel when it comes to TPL-001? I'm gonna let George handle that. I think that, that one probably
3: comes to me. My understanding is that they want pure redundancy, okay? Now, at uh, the present moment, I don't understand. We'd have to talk about how, how the redundancy works within the substation or the generating plant. If whether or not two separate power systems would uh, meet the requirement or whether it's better to have the the basically redundant battery chargers so that one can fail or we use a modular battery charger where we we don't we can one charger, but we only need to add one extra module and have the part the the batteries in parallel. the The point is that what they're talking about that' they're, they're looking for, redundancy the reason for having the monitor is 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 not uh, is much more about identifying the cells which could be faulty in both batteries so it's you know simply simply putting two batteries in parallel or even having you No, know, as i said it really depends i would give you this example that in in data centers, and quite often in a lot of the data equipment, it'll actually be duplicated completely all the way through the term. The question is, I don't think that was the intention when they wrote TPL-001-5 or the Dash 5 edition. They were simply looking for at least a a second battery there and a second charger, both operating in parallel. Simple as that. That's all they're looking for. But that doesn't negate the need for the monitor. It simply means there is a better chance that if you have a failure in one, the other one will help support the load. But they both could have bad cells in them. So you still need the monitor to identify what the problems are. There's there's this continual discussion that goes on about whether it should be a monitor or discharge testing. I have a simple answer to that one. It's both. The monitor's job is to identify cells that are failing, and the di- the discharge test, when you do it, is to identify the remaining capacity in the battery. It's two totally separate things. So, no, you, you don't stop. Just because we, a customer has two batteries in does not mean to say you
2: stop selling a monitor. George, I can't add add much to that, but, you know, TPL-001 is kind of like PRC-005. It's written to confuse. And also it's kind of, they're looking for a way out of having to do everything in the proper way. That's just my opinion. So if you want a truly redundant system, you do it like you do in telecom you do it, you have even down to dual inputs for the chargers. So it's not enough to have redundant chargers. You should have to separate feeds for the chargers. You an a feed and a B feed. That's just my opinion.
4: Just a follow-up kind of to the battery monitoring point. It's more of a morality question. If If you do sell the battery monitoring to a customer, What is the vendor's obligation to make sure that that customer actually installs or ties that system into their network and and SCADA systems in a way that actually makes them compliant versus not doing that? Where does the the battery monitoring system vendor fall in the responsibility of, of ensuring that?
3: It's an interesting one, Andrew, because it's one that has challenged the battery monitoring industry since it started. In the very early days, the the whole idea of monitoring, which was the introduction, in a sense, it was the introduction of ohmic measurement for VLA batteries. That's what started the whole concept of, of monitoring in that, in this format. And the idea was then that simply was you were... You were using the monitor to develop, re- basically measuring parameters that you couldn't. You could no longer visually, or measure with a hydrometer. So it was a case of the, the job of the monitor was simply to provide data that a battery technician could analyze. Over the years, we have lost all the battery technicians. They, that that position does not exist in any company now, and. If you know you're perfectly correct in in my previous employment I number of times I went out to a customer that had installed battery monitoring and they had never connected it to anything and the the only data I had on the unit was the last two weeks because it kept overwriting the memory in those days so I do believe that today we have as a as a company we have a much greater obligation to uh, educate as part of the sales process, so we we they're they being asked to have something that they don't, they may not fully understand. So it's our job, as part of the sales process, to actually educate the customer in what is required and how to do it and how to analyze the data as well, because that's also a a major challenge.
2: As well, George, there's a something else we run run up against. I don't know if Andrew runs up against it or not, is that everything is going smoothly, you're installing the monitor, and then you realize you have to connect it to a network operations center or some form of central control. And then the thing is, oh, that data is not going to leave this room, is it? So you know what I'm talking about, George. So you run into that problem as well.
3: Well, you you you've hit the second part of it. Are the the new SIP requirements the cyber security requirements, and that is a challenge because it depends how the monitor is connected. It depends how the the organisation has set up their communications, whether or not they have the required secure networks in place. You no, know, it's everything is is a is a challenge. I uh, you know I, I think you, you've probably all seen there's adverts going on all the time about the number of thousands, hundreds of thousands of positions for people that understand cybersecurity. we are short, unbelievably short of people that understand it. So you know we as 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 the vendor, I feel we have an element of responsibility at least to try and educate. Some customers may not want to listen to me. Some customers may not want to understand but if we have gone through the process of at least giving them the education, you know, our, our liabilities are limited. The, the whole reason in the early days, why the uh, in, the insurance companies did not want the new battery monitoring companies to actually tell the customer whether the battery was bad because they were scared of the liability associated with that. Now, but I think there's two things here is n- we can, rather than tell them it's bad, we can identify the potential for risk, and that is what you know. That within the or most of the organisations now, risk is the is the thing. What is the element of risk of this failing? And you, we can we can give them an indication of risk. It doesn't say it's going to. Uh, it might might last. It might not. You know that's the point. Does that help?
2: Well, Andrew. It- it can make you look smart, same same as Doug. They, you know, the fact that you bring this up with the customer, whereas other vendors might not. So you can tell them to tread very carefully. And the other thing is that, you know, when it comes to the charger side of it, yeah, I, I was reading a data sheet a couple of weeks ago for one of our chargers, and it said right up front, made in the USA. So, you know... It's a kind of a selling point, but, you know, it's another selling point letting the customer know that you're looking out for them. And the fact that you want to know, is there a, is there any specific requirements as to uh, bringing the monitor outside the the battery room or whatever? Mm
5: -hmm. So
0: what about Doug? Or, or, uh, yeah, Pat, what's the, Pat, Pat, you got a question? Sorry, Pat. Duo
5: here. Hey, guys. Yeah, I do. So recently I've had several requests for battery monitoring system that includes humidity monitoring. And I was wondering what the purpose of this is. I've only seen it a few times just lately. And would you find that to be something that's totally necessary in a battery monitoring system?
2: Well, I know it's important when it comes to to the battery because... You know you don't want to get some, a condensation on the battery because it could cause uh short circuits and, and ground faults but uh, uh with respect to the monitor i can't are, are you saying it should be rated for a certain humidity uh, window is that what you're saying pat
5: i i'm i'm personally not 100 percent sure to be honest um I would, i'm still looking into it a little bit but yeah it just includes a humidity monitor and some of these. I think both of these requests were overseas as well. So I don't know if it's area specific, but uh, humidity monitoring included with all the other, you know, parameters that it would measure.
2: Well, having spent several years in the Middle East, both George and I can uh, relate to the humidity uh, problems. But I I I wouldn't think it's a, a big deal to have a, if not already in there, to have a H monitor on our monitor your thoughts George
3: yeah that's that's the the purpose of um having the ability to have external alarms put into the monitor That's, uh, you know that's that's one of the uh, we we have I uh, the currently we have the ability to put two in but neither of them are, are currently actually programmed for anything so you know because they, they're there to be able to alarm from an external, any form of external alarm. So you could, you could easily just provide a, a separate humidity monitor that could alarm at the level the customer is requiring, and then we can connect it to the monitor and register it as an alarm under uh, normal operating conditions.
2: Does that answer your question, Pat?
5: Yeah, I think it does.
2: It's a good question. It's the first time it's been brought up, but humidity and condensation on a battery is a big deal, believe it or not. So, And I'm not surprised it's coming from overseas. Yeah. Unless it's from Florida.
0: All right, thanks, Pat. Yeah, Next. let's go back around to Doug. I know he's got some more here, so let's
1: have it. Sure, I'm gonna steer us back to the batteries where I have uh, some questions on. Can you guys elaborate on what the C ratings are? So C8, C10, C20, and why are they important for sizing of batteries?
2: Okay, that's, I'll take that George. first of all, if you don't mind. C, C stands for capacity, okay? So the C rating, if you see something like C slash eight, that means capacity over eight. Okay, so if it's a hundred ampere hour battery, sorry, make it easy for myself. If it's an 18 hour, b- hour battery, the C over eight would be ten ampere hours. Okay, it's as simple as that. It comes, it doesn't really come into the so much into the sizing of a battery, it comes into the recharge of a battery. In other words, some especially VRLA batteries are susceptible to high current on a recharge. So some manufacturers might say, okay, the recharge current should not exceed C over eight. So if it's an 80 ampere hour battery, it should not receive, you know, 10 amps recharge current. That's that's simple the simplest answer I can give you. So I don't really understand where it comes into the sizing of a battery. So George, do you have anything on that? Oh, the, you, no,
3: you've covered it. It's basically, it's it's the way the battery was designed. If, we, if it's, a, as I said, C over eight, then the optimum amount of energy you are going to remove from that battery safely will be over that eight-hour period. You know, t- typically, uh, if you look at the ampere hour, overall ampere hour rating of the battery and then divide it by the, the number you'll get, you get the. They should. Uh, it should basically come up. You know, with that's the number of amps you can draw for eight hours. The, uh, as Alan said, it is. It, it comes into play when you're also doing the recharge, but it, it's. It's probably more about selecting the optimum battery for the application. So in other words, if you're looking for one that has to go for twenty hours. You might be looking for it. You might be looking for a, a twenty-hour battery, although they, they they tend to be the very small ones. To be honest, typically the U, the US are rated at eight C over eight. Uh, a lot of the European ones are C over ten, but to, a lot. Then again, a lot of the data sheets now for the European batteries that they they were importing are also now they've been re-rated at C over eight. And it simply is that. The eight-hour discharge has been a standard for the utilities and telecom for years. That's that's how long they want the the site to stay up.
2: So, you know, when it comes to requesting a quote for a battery, this, this applies only to long-duration batteries. Like long duration, I would define that as probably 30 minutes, one hour and above. Because batteries lower than that are, are related in watts, and it's a completely different game. But, you know, a customer might say, I want 10 amps for eight hours, or I want 20 amps for eight hours. All that means is, you know, you give them a 280 or 160 ampere battery. That's, that's it. So it's more significant, as I said, it's more significant when it comes to the recharge. The, the, the age is a, as George said, is a standard just like 1.75 volts per cell is a standard for discharge, just like 25 degrees Fahrenheit in North America is a standard. 25 degrees C, please, Alan. 25 degrees C, 20, 77 degrees Fahrenheit. And, and C it stands for Celsius, not centigrade these days, George. You know, they change everything in us all farce. That's true. <clears throat>
0: The, All right, the, thanks. You know, are you? You have more there, George. Go ahead.
3: No, that uh, that 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 about sums it up. You know? uh, I mean, oh, no, the one that I was going to make a comment. Alan, Alan said, if you want that battery, then you want one hundred and sixty ampere hour. He's forgetting the fact that if you're really doing the calculation correctly, you've got to remember the the design factor, which is the CYA requirement. And the age factor to, to make sure that it still supports the battery 80%, it supports the load
2: at 80% capacity. So, you know. But, but that's the, something if you just that, the, the pure. That's something, that's something a customer has to write into his request. Yeah, you know, we can ask the question, Doug, you can certainly ask the question, okay, this, you want 100 amps for eight hours. Okay, is there, is there any design factor I need to? Calculate into that as uh, a lot of them will have a design factor, 25%. So here you come up with 125 ampere battery and uh, okay. What about growth? Well, that's built in the design factor. Well, what about meeting the IEEE end of life uh, standard, which is 80% of full capacity? Do you want to factor that in as well? So you keep going this, you can, you can really upsell a battery, but it also makes the customer think you know, that you're thinking about them, okay? Because your competitors going to just bid the cheapest possible battery. Not all your competitors. You've got very good competitors out there. But some of them will. Some of them will just bid the bare minimum. So thanks for adding that, George.
1: Yes, thank you both.
0: Andrew, do you have another question lined up?
4: And just thinking through what you guys have have talked about so far, kind of a simple one here. You know, we talked about jar types and different things and the different capacities. In 2023, is there really any reason for me as a customer to buy a flooded battery anymore? Isn't VRLA just far superior as far as footprint, flame retardant jars, everything about them? Just seems to be superior. Is there any reason why I would buy a flooded jar at this point? Well,
3: that's an easy answer, uh, Andrew. Reliability.
2: I was going to say, people ask me that question. My stock answer is well, if I'm on a heart lung machine, I'd want a flooded battery backing it up. The, uh, it's far superior in reliability, but not only reliability, heat dissipation. The main difference between a a VLA battery and a VRLA battery is in a V and if, the electrolyte is in contact with the case material all the time, even though it's getting low. So much better heat dissipation. But the other thing is that in a VRLA battery, as it dries out, if it's a gel battery, uh, it can lose contact with the case material. And the same applies if it's a absorbed glass mat. So... Uh, as you lose electrolyte, and you are going to, people think that a VLA battery, you're never going to lose your, any electrolyte. Probably you're going to lose some, unless you're operating in pristine conditions. So, you know, as the battery ages, you're losing, losing not only are you losing electrolyte and the ability to dissipate heat, but you're also losing electrolyte. And as a rule of thumb, I forget what it is, George, uh, something like if you lose 10 to 20% of your electrolyte in the battery, in the VLA battery, you lose 50% of your capacity. So I could probably give you some other reasons why you should go with a vented lead-acid battery. So I'll let George add some more here. If, you, I, I, if I can I'll get
3: to I was just going to say that what you're losing, you're not actually losing electrolyte when the, uh, the VLA battery vents. You're losing hydrogen oxygen, in other words, the, the water content of the electrolyte. And, and one of the, the challenges you have with that is that what it does is it actually increases the specific gravity that the cell is operating under. There's just less of the there's less electrolyte now, but it's stronger. And one of the results of that is that the battery tends to look good. It just doesn't last very long. It's, it's actually interesting. Apparently, in America, that's our most common failure mode for our VRLAs would be dry out over time. In Europe, it's sulfation. So clearly, we overcharge our batteries, and in Europe, they undercharge them. But why? I wouldn't know.
4: Well, so do you if, do you think there's a certain flooded you know you use the analogy that if you were hooked up on this machine you'd want to flood it is there a specific chemistry because when i look at the market right now i see the likes of intersys who has a big market share here in the u.s and and they're directly marketing their sbs xl line as a 100 a percent replacement of opzs batteries in the field and they're marketing to their customers hey it's got the exact same footprint as an OPZS battery. Why don't you replace and update your OPZS batteries with this BRLA SBS pure lead battery? Is it, is it specifically OPZS batteries that are problematic for clients in the industry that they're they're looking to move them into BRLAs? Or is well, there a specific reason why they're doing this?
2: It's both. You know, it's a competitive thing out there. OPZ batteries, typically... One of the batteries of choice in Europe, or I said North America, they are tubular, and they tried it to have a longer life because of the shedding of the and, and the pure lead mostly shedding of the electrolyte off the plate material uh, into into the electrolyte. The other thing is that they, uh, I'm not sure, sure the, the particular Ennis's model, but a lot of you know things go around. At one time, the most reliable battery in the world was what we call a plant cell. It was a pure lead plate. And uh, in the old days, Belco came along and Western Electric and decided, well, we need to do something else. So the thing they found was that they let's put a hardening agent into the lead because lead is very soft and pliable, and the badges were getting damaged just by moving them, transporting them. So they added antimony. And of course, antimony caused uh, it hardened the plates, but but it caused uh, excessive gassing in the battery. So they looked at it again and decided to add calcium. Okay, well, you no longer had the excessive excessive gassing, but you had a excessive plate growth because the calcium eventually expanded and uh, caused this positive plate growth. And George's point about overcharging the uh, charging. It's purely dependent upon the specific gravity of the electrolyte. And I don't think it differs much between the chemistry of the battery, you know, the lead acid, the lead chemistry. So it's okay to replace one with the other. It depends who the vendor is. And in my mind, vendor A, who you just mentioned might be trying to take market share away from vendor B who. Sells the tubular battery in, into this country. So, George, would you want to add to that?
3: Yeah, I think I think you're you're absolutely right. The, the 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 thin plate lead is uh, because as I said, we come back around the the planties had thick plate lead plates. Uh, whereas these are thin plate lead. They're used in the VLA form, and they are. Much, much more reliable than any of the other VLA batteries. So, if you're if you're trying to sell the customer on the fact that they no longer need to top up the the cells on a regular basis, among other things, because that is one of the challenges for some customers on a, on a labour element. So then the thin plate becomes a good choice, but it is considerably more expensive. That's the whole point. And there are, you know, there are actually VRA uh, OPZs as well. The, o, the OPC, when we talk about it, it's an OPM or something, it's got another number. Anyway, the OP is simply the style of battery, which is tall and thin, whereas the American style batteries tend to be squat and fat. It's just the way they have been designed. And the other advantage of the OPZ or the, OP, the OP batteries is that they take up less space. So you know this is all all part of the the selling process. I, I I'll be honest with you. I think almost all the battery manufacturers now are offering their version of each one of these type of batteries. The the Ennis, you know, as uh, I know, brings some of theirs in from Europe.
4: Where, yeah, where they're made, the challenge they're plants in Europe, yeah, and the challenge really is there then Georgia. Which battery do you give the customer? Do you just keep the the customer in the battery that they've they've been specced in for thirty years? or do you do you actually look through the different technologies with the client, educate them on on the differences there? So sometimes that's harder than than others. For example, a bid you're kind of constrained by the nature of of what a bidding process is. Um, but when we're in the field with a customer and we're we're reviewing battery systems with them, we're doing site walks, and you see some of the conditions of these batteries in the field, you know, and, and you know just from looking at the batteries based on the condition, the corrosion, you know, the cracks, the swelling, right there in the field, you can tell that the customer that they're almost for sure, a failed battery system if it were to, going to load. So then you have a risk assessment that needs to be done there, but then it, the conversation leads to, well, what batteries should we replace this with? Should we replace this with the same thing, or should we look at your application and what you guys are hoping to achieve? Is it cost? Is it time that, you know, in between changeouts? Is it maintenance? There, there's a lot of variables there that I think can be handled, but it, it, the battery manufacturers don't seem to make this any easier with Every new marketing scheme and, and everything that they've come out with the market with, that the applications seem to overlap quite a bit between their battery lines.
3: You, uh, you, you're right, Andre. You're, but the, you're, you're correct in the sense is that in the end, we have to educate. One of the challenges we have is that we have stopped educating people for about two generations of battery people and as a result we have a, a distinct lack of knowledge within all the industries as to the importance of the battery as part of the the overall standby process and resiliency of the of the system so it's you know education is a key part to it and that's uh, i think that's where we can as a company because we we're focused on education as part of our selling process that we can win now Will it always be received? Well, you know, as you said yourself, it's going to depend who you're selling to. There are, you know, it used to be, I don't, it's not so much today, but at one point, you know, the simple answer was: when you wanted to buy a computer, whether it was a small one or a very big one, you never got in trouble if you bought IBM because it was good. No. In the end, people started to realize that other companies actually could build even better computers than IBM. But it took a long time, and it's exactly what you say is exactly the same thing, especially if you have people, I hate to say this, considering Alan and I's age, but a lot of the times when a a person is heading towards retirement, they are simply going to go with what they know and they're not going to take any risks so that they can quietly retire and not worry. Just as long as it fails at the same rate as it did for the last 30 years, they'll be absolutely fine.
2: Yeah, the, the, you're, you're actually right, George, but something else you have to take into consideration is form and fit, you know, and, and warranty. Look at the warranties. The warranties are basically the same, I think. But with form and fit, if you go with a a different size and shape battery, you have two or three different problems. One, will it fit on the existing rack? You may not want to use the existing rack, it may be corroded, but you know, will it f- Will you have to rewire the positive the, positive negative takeoffs of the battery? Do you have any height restrictions? There's a lot of other things to be taken into consideration, but the, with respect to the VRLA batteries, the big push at the moment is thin plate pure lead, although some manufacturers are coming out with some tin additive to the so-called pure lead. So, you thin plate pure lead tin. So, I, I, I don't know. But to, back to to Andrew's original question, the, there's a lot of, it depends. And, you know, the other thing you might want to take into consideration is, okay, these are 20-year life batteries, so-called 20-year life. I have seen plenty of vented lead acid batteries that have exceeded that. I've never seen a VRLA battery, never seen a VRLA battery, that it has exceeded that. And so, you know, with equipment changing and advancing so quickly these days, you know, do you really need a 20-year life battery? Do you need it really? Because, you know, your equipment's only going to last seven or eight years until you change out to something else, which may be a lot less power and, and require a lot less power. So you don't really need that big battery. So there's a lot of things you need to consider. So anyway, once again, it's talk to the customer, see what he wants. Make sure you know that you're looking into all the all the different options and not just trying to sell them a particular product. And the great thing about Eagle Eye is that we're not specifically tied to one particular battery manufacturer. So we can sell them what we think is best for them.
0: Okay. You guys want to take time for one more? Do you guys have time? Yeah. Well, I,
2: I, I see Doug's chafing at the bit there. So, uh, so why don't we give him a, the last one?
1: All right. All right. So I've got to we'll go back to batteries here and, and sizing of batteries. And, and this is kind of a, a multi part question here. In regards to selecting the appropriate battery for a customer's application, what is a load profile? How is it created? when in the process of sizing a battery should it be created and who's it created by? Oh boy.
2: Okay. I'll Wait. handle the first part of it. The a load profile, it only applies to batteries that are not subject to a constant load. Now typically UPS batteries, telecom batteries are sized to a pretty constant load. Some utility batteries in they have to perform some different functions. So when there's a power outage, the first thing it might have to do, battery might have to do, is open some circuit breakers, start some pumps. So during the first minute, that battery is very busy. It's supplying a lot of power. Okay, once a, once that is done, then you have a what they call a maintenance load. So it's just a load, uh, usually quite low, for the period of time might just be a couple of amps as opposed to you know three or four hundred amps for the first initial step load. So and then you come along to the you may have a couple of steps in between, but then you, you come along to the end of the outage, right? When you have to reclose breakers and perform other functions. So that that in that case it has to be sized for a much higher output. So the low profile is just a, if you were to take a, a drawing of those steps, you know, high up for front and then down a little bit, and then maybe even out and then up a little bit. And then, you know, you've got a five or six different load steps within that, say, four hour, eight hour battery. That's what's called the load profile. So you have to size the battery to that. Now, luckily, there's a few companies out there that you can enter the data and that will give you spit out the right battery. The other thing is there's a couple of neat calculators in IEEE. What's it? 484, George. I'm not, I can't remember. Mm-hmm. I got brain fog at the moment, but it tells you how to do that. Now, Eagle Eye asked me to write a step load calculator for him, and I found it extremely difficult. So I... I Essentially, slope shoulders on, and so why, so why do we need that? Because X Y Z company, A B C company, they all have low profile cal- uh, step low calculators on their website. If you're authorised to use them, of which I am, so by hook or by crook. So anyway, that's the, that's the answer to your first part. So George, what do you want to add to that?
3: What do I want to add to that? But yeah, you're absolutely right. But the question about who who what you're asking is who decides what that load profile is? That's decided at the time that if if it's a substation, uh, that's decided at the time the substation is being designed because it's been designed to do a specific job. we we think sometimes people think of it it's just it just sits there and does one thing. it doesn't it it, it may well be designed to shed load at certain times and at other times to add load to be able to transfer load all these things are taken into account based on what what might happen during an outage and they come up with these the load profiles to make sure that any one of these steps that might occur uh, are covered within the load profile it's not to say that it will always do it but the they're basically saying you have to. They, my favorite part of it is when you know, Alan can quote the four, uh, 484. Yes, that's that's great. You go and do the calculator. Don't bother. It's an absolute pain to do manually. It's much easier just to get the the battery manufacturer's version of it and stick the figures in. But that's that that's the point. And the the reason that one of the reasons why. We can take it as being important, is yes, for the sizing, because the sizing is, is quite complicated to be able to handle that difference. Uh, but the other thing is that if you want to test the battery, you have to replicate that load profile. But unfortunately, as I've discovered in many cases, the customers actually don't know what the load profile is for any specific location. So, yes, and it's what let's go back to one of your earlier questions about should you just apply the same battery that was there before? In a substation, I might be tempted to do that. If they, if they don't know the load profile so that you can size a new battery to do the job, then going with the original one that was installed there should have been sized based on the original load profile by the people building the substation.
2: It's just George. I can almost guarantee you that, that if it's a older substation, older facility, that if you say to the engineer in charge, "What's the load profile?", he will not have any clue. No. So, so once again, unless it's recorded somewhere, and a lot of these load profiles are swags, you know, swinging wild ass guesses. So, you know, the original originally. So, you know, who knows about it? Yes, that's a very technical term. You have to have a, at least a double E to be able to say that. So anyway, the you know, a lot of times everything, say something was sized on, on breakers, right? Well, we know breakers are oversized anyway. And so who knows if it's accurate. So stick with what, what's there. You know, that's a very, that's a very good opt out, George. I know you're good at this, but that's a very good opt-out.
1: Thank you, thank you both.
2: No, no, no comeback, no comeback from George.
1: I'm yep.
2: do, do we have time for another question? I'm quite enjoying this. Yeah.
0: Get another no, one. We, always, in. we can always do a part two, also, if you guys want to.
2: Okay. Well, I'd like to get some, like to some of the other other sales guys involved. Sure. Uh, you know, I. I appreciate salespeople because, you know, I tried to do it once, but I found out it was too honest. So I couldn't, couldn't make a living at it. So, so, so anyway, it's a, it's a hard job and, you know, just learn to say it depends and learn to say, well, yeah, we got an expert called George Peterson on board. Let me ask him.
4: I haven't felt See? so complimented. In one sentence and insulted in the same exact sentence, the way that you just did that. That's impressive.
2: Yeah. Well, you know, you know, the definition of Irish diplomacy. It's it's the ability to tell somebody to go to hell in such a way that they look forward to the trip.
0: There we go. All right, guys. Well, I I definitely enjoyed it, too. I think we do need to re reconvene and and have this conversation continued. So any any final words?
2: No, uh, I've enjoyed it, and all all the questions have been very good. And uh, you know, don't Landra's not scared to ask. I know, but Doug, you know, being relative newbie, we appreciate everything you're doing. So you know, don't be scared to reach out to us. You know, all I can say is it depends. So. Thank you. That's your standard answer to everything, Mister Byrne. Yes.
0: Oh. Yeah. So. Awesome. All right. Well, thanks a lot, guys. Really appreciate the conversation and look forward to doing it again. We hope you can join us next time. And in the meantime, if you have any questions for the Battery Blarney Duo or anything else you want us to discuss in next week's episode, please email us at info at eepowersolutions.com. Thanks again for listening. Talk to you then.